You're listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell, a podcast discussing the latest trends in technology in the food and supplement industries, featuring conversations with regulatory experts, quality and safety champions, and thought leaders across the industry. The podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to today's episode of Transparency Talk with Trustwell. My name is Katie Jones, and I am the Chief Customer Officer here at Trustwell. In today's episode, we will continue the conversation around traceability, but we will shift our focus from regulatory and FSMA 204 and food safety over to sustainability. Traceability is critical to the calculation of certain sustainability metrics by providing accurate and reliable data on the origin, production process, and distribution of products or materials along the food supply chain. This data that's associated with the movement of materials can be used to calculate carbon footprint or climate impact at various scales from products down to companies. Traceability can also help with other sustainability disclosures from nature, water, and forests to social attributes by providing visibility into land use, deforestation, labor practices, human rights violations, and other issues material to the sustainability of a product or an industry. And over the last 18 months, there has been a rapid evolution in the voluntary guidance and mandated regulations around corporate sustainability disclosure. This evolution, poised to begin impacting corporate disclosures as soon as 2024, recommends or even requires companies to improve their traceability in order to comply. So how can traceability support these emerging regulations and guidance on tracking and accounting for these sustainability impacts throughout the entire food chain? Here to talk with us on the podcast today is Dr. Allison Grantham of Grow Well Consulting. An energetic and adept problem solver, Allison has worked across the supply chain from the farmer's soil to procurement and fulfillment at an 800 million direct-to-consumer food company, where she developed standards, assessments, third-party technical assistance partnerships, and other tools and strategies to enhance the company's farm partner growing practices. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. Now we'll get started with our first question. If you could just give our listeners a broad overview, what is the landscape of sustainability disclosure guidance and regulations today? And how important is sustainability to each of those uh, pieces? Yeah, thanks. So there have been a couple of a big um <laughs> big changes both on the voluntary side as well as some of what had been voluntary frameworks moving over into uh, regulations both in the EU and in the US. So on the voluntary side, the big uh, recent developments are the rules that govern climate target setting and inventory accounting for the land-based sector, which includes everything from forestry and agriculture, companies like ADM, Cargill and Tyson to CPGs like 
General Mills and Unilever to retailers like Target and Kroger. Um, so these companies all have, like all businesses, have fossil fuel emissions, which disclosure rules have been set for a while on those. But they also have significant non-fossil fuel greenhouse gas emissions, things like methane from livestock, nitrous oxide from soil, and carbon dioxide from land use change. And um, the IPCC, the scientific body that is guiding us on, you know, what we need to do to keep uh, climate change to safer levels, um, has different emissions reductions pathways for those other um, types of non-fossil or biogenic emissions. And so the guidance um, is just catching up with that um, to support companies in setting targets for reducing those emissions and um, then including those emissions and their tracking of those emissions um, in their uh, inventories, their, their greenhouse gas inventories um, and disclosures. So um, the two key uh, voluntary pieces of uh, guidance are the flag target setting guidance from the Science-Based Targets Network, which came out uh, last September and in its final form, and the uh, land sector and removals guidance from the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, uh, which also came out last September but in a draft form, and we're expecting it to be finalized this year, maybe even in June. Um, there's also um, sustained certs um, value chain interventions guidance, which came out um, in 2021 um, and uh, can also help companies account for specific projects. Um, but what we're seeing, what, we, what came out last year, sort of that holistic um, accounting for these biogenic emissions. And then we are seeing that move into, from a voluntary, into a regulatory space. So in the EU, um, their corporate sustainability reporting directive went into effect in January um, and requires um, climate disclosure. Like up until this point, this has been voluntary. If you do do it, you have to do it in a certain way, follow these um, the greenhouse gas protocol. But um, now the EU is saying, yes, you have to disclose. And their reporting directive goes beyond climate. Climate is one of the sustainability attributes that companies are going to need to disclose, but there are also um, other uh, more social dimensions, which will also require traceability. Um, and in the U.S., um, the SEC proposed rules to enhance and standardize climate-related disclosures um, in March of 2022. Initially, it was supposed to be finalized by December, but um, they people have a lot of feelings and thoughts on it. And so um, there's a, a bit of delay in finalizing that. But um, both the EU and the US rules were intended to first impact disclosure for the fiscal 2024, which would be reports published in 2025. But that means that this year, 2023, is when companies are going to need to set up the data infrastructure, including traceability, to support um, disclosure next year. Um, so there's also, I think, this 
maybe best exemplified by that EU rule, this move to sort of recognize that we've built significant disclosure capacity, corporate disclosure capacity around climate, and to use that as a model to um, that investors are pushing for companies to disclose other things like their impacts on nature. Um, we just saw the science-based targets network, which released the flag flag target setting guidance last year, um, release um, target setting target setting guidance for nature um, in May. Um, and um, you know, some some broader efforts around getting companies to not just disclose their impact on climate, but also water, uh, biodiversity, um, et cetera. And so all of those things stem from primary production practices as well as processing through the supply chain. But really um, to comply with any of these disclosures, companies are going to need end-to-end event-based traceability um, related to all of the um, products and the ingredients of those products um, in their supply chain. It's very interesting to see, um, you know, this culmination of, you know, companies that have been, uh, you know, working to voluntarily report, but then now the intersection of, um, you know, more guidance and more regulation coming in and how that's impacting, you know, perhaps what companies were doing um, uh, before, but placing some more, you know, structure around it, some more guidance. One of those um, that you mentioned, obviously, is the Greenhouse Gas Protocol Land Sector and Removals Guidance. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar, because most of our listeners are, um, you know, perhaps in the food safety space, uh, supply chain or um, nutrition may not be as familiar with this guidance. Can you give an overview and specifically why it's important uh, to the food supply chain? Yeah, so the food supply chain is different from some other industries in that most of their greenhouse gas footprint is related to the initial primary production of the food uh, or the ingredients. Um, So the growing of the crops um, or the raising of the livestock. And this means that they have... um, two different types of of greenhouse gas emissions broadly. So those um, emissions that every industry has that come from burning fossil fuels. So those are fossil emissions. And then those uh, biogenic emissions that are related to the management of livestock, soils, and plants. So our sort of grand climate challenge here is to eliminate those fossil greenhouse gas emissions, but also uh, climate change is not just driven by those, also to reduce biogenic emissions. So um, the IPCC advises different pathways for those two different categories. So we're driving towards elimination of fossil uh, fuel emissions. For the biogenic emissions, there's different pathways depending on the type, the specific type of emission, whether it's methane, nitrous oxide, or carbon dioxide from land use change. So land use change is the most similar to the goals for fossil uh, fuels. So we got to 
cut the fossil fuels, also stop cutting down forests and converting, you know, draining wetlands and converting those to cropland. Those two types of land use change um, result in a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, essentially carbon that had been stored in biomass and trees and soil getting released to the atmosphere. Um, and the IPCC and experts are, are really aligned that that needs to, you know, be stopped <laughs> yesterday. Um, and uh, a lot of our scenarios looking out towards 2050 have that what's right now a, a contribution to climate change essentially becoming a sink so reversing that um and uh so so that for food companies that means you know no more cropland expansion managing the cropland that we do have um to support any increases in production that we need to have and um shifting towards letting some of that land um be restored into forest to to store to recapture some of the, the carbon dioxide that's currently in the atmosphere. Um, then methane from livestock, you know, that does not need to go to zero, but there does need to be, especially in the short term, um, some reductions in um, methane emissions. So uh, hopefully, uh, or ideally, according to the IPCC, you know, front-loading those reductions, so reducing by more than 50% by 2030, which we all know how fast uh, companies, especially bigger ones, can move. That's a huge change in a relatively short period of time. Um, and then reducing 70% by 2050. And then nitrous oxide, which is the most potent of these greenhouse gases, um, but is, we have sort of the, very challenging to manage. Um, the reduction pathway for it is less uh, dramatic, so a 25% reduction. So this is why the uh, land sector um, and removals guidance was necessary. So it, it moved from basically CO2 equivalents and just sort of broad brush management of all greenhouse gases in sort of a similar way um, to a gas-specific management guidance um, that can really be much better applied to things like crops and soils and livestock um, that uh, people in the food supply chain are making decisions about how to manage and how to formulate products. You know, are you going to to get that 50% reduction? You're going to have to, you know, shift to formulating maybe with more plant-based products um, and less, you know, uh, cow-based uh, cheese or um, beef in in products. So. Um, this guidance um, provides that critical instruction to food supply chain actors on how to inventory these biogenic emissions um, and how to evaluate and implement strategies to reduce them in line with IPCC guidance. So um, notably, this guidance, uh, which includes both sort of must-dos and may-dos, um, relies heavily on traceability. So it's a 429 page set of guidance um, 
but traceability is mentioned 221 times in those 429 pages. So traceability is critical um, and it is not in the nice to have part of the guidance. It is in the must have, particularly for removals. And so a removal is something like uh, <laughs> storing, car taking carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in either soil or trees. Um, and uh, so companies that are all looking to do that to reach their net zero by 2050 um, goals are required under this guidance to have traceability um, to the point of removal. So to that field that had the increased soil uh, carbon or to the tract of land where, um, you know, some enhanced agro uh, forestry practices or silvopasture was implemented that increased carbon storage in trees. Um, companies who want to include those in their greenhouse gas uh, strategies need to have traceability to that point um, in space, it's it cannot be um, cannot be nebulous. So that really means that uh, you know traceability is is critical to compliance with this uh, guidance, and companies are going to need to implement it in partnership with all of their supply chain partners to really be able to comply with this guidance. <laughs> Two hundred and twenty-one times. That is, <laughs> that's uh, it's clearly a priority uh, in in the guidance as you as you lay out. I think about how companies um, who may be on this journey towards FISMA two hundred four, and you know, which is only for a subset of products, right? So there's some complexity to that, but you know, as we're all working towards this common goal of traceability, you know, how can companies leverage perhaps their, you know, existing efforts and traceability to support this guidance? Yeah, the good news is um, the definition of traceability that's included in this guidance is consistent with the type of event-based traceability that companies would need to have to comply with FISMA 204. Um, so they define it as the ability of a company to identify, track, and collect information on activities in its value chain across its upstream and downstream processes and products. So this is the same. It's, you know, expanding from one up, one down traceability to cross supply chain event-based traceability, making the digital flow of data mirror the physical flow of product um, through space and time. So companies that have implemented traceability in their uh, supply chains, particularly upstream of their operations, will be able to leverage that traceability, which maybe they did for other reasons um, beyond climate, to support their disclosures. Um, so one way in which companies who already have enhanced traceability are going to benefit from that or be able to leverage it, you know, companies who 
know their point of supply um, more clearly is um, related to their their climate target settings. So um, companies are required since there's those three major you know types of climate contributions uh, related to land use change, related to livestock, and related to um, soil nitrous oxide emissions, companies do need to account for land use change related to uh, their um, their product sourcing. If they don't know where their products are coming from because they don't have sufficient traceability, they have to use something called statistical land use change, um, which is a calculated based, you know, generically on where the um where the products are coming from and blends both direct land use change associated with the specific squares of cropland that you know grew those soybeans or grew that palm um, and um indirect land use change. So maybe not that specific field, but sort of the the general land use change that is occurring in a region that is important for the production of, of that um, commodity. Now, companies that do have traceability can just use direct land use change. So they are uh, which you know is inherently lower because it's not pulling in the indirect land use change um, that statistical that statistical method would. Um, so uh, the guidance is basically incentivizing enhanced traceability um, for companies to you know be able to demonstrate that yes we are making good on our zero deforestation commitment yes we are making good on. Um, our commitment to restrict our supply base um, and you know not support continued deforestation. So um, you know many companies have uh, already embarked on uh, initiatives or projects on the grounds uh, that are aiming to increase soil carbon storage or decrease land use change. Um, but what this guidance does is makes it clear that they will need traceability to across their supply chains through the processors, through the uh, you know primary manufacturers, to those actual um, areas on the ground where they, these projects are being implemented um, to be able to account for those projects, greenhouse gas impacts in their inventories. So, um, yeah, I think <laughs> I, I think that hopefully that gives folks a, a good sense. You know, it's it's not a different it, it's different data uh, or more data, although some of it's the same data, um, just data on literally where um, other times, you know, it will be additional data when, when you're talking about removals or talking about impacts on nitrous oxide, you're going to have to include that data. Um, but it's that same sort of infrastructure about, you know, who held the pro who made the product, uh, who shipped it, and from where that is also necessary to support things like FISMA 204. 
It is interesting. Um, I was just sitting here thinking, yes, it is. It's just an expansion of, you know, the key data elements associated to um, those tracking events, you know, along the supply chain. Um, and it's a, that's a very simplistic explanation, I am sure. And that's, um, and, and, you know, what we hear when um, working with companies to implement traceability is that there is a lot of change and, um, and understanding where that data is coming from, working with your trading partners to capture that data. You know, it is a lot of, um, a lot of program management, a lot of change, but, but the value is there both from a regulatory standpoint, and then as we start looking at um, connecting data points between, say, um, in a food service supply chain, as an example, we look at the connection between um, expiration date and um, receiving date. And we just released this in our product, actually, um, being able to capture that and understand what your threshold is. Um, and that's essentially providing you with data on, on freshness. So there are all of these um, uh, you know, ROI metrics really of implementing a traceability program. When you think about applying traceability for, um, you know, measuring sustainability metrics, what barriers do you see um, to tracking these metrics? How can companies overcome them? And what we see obviously is leaning in on that ROI. What is the ROI in tracking these metrics? Yeah. So, um, in terms of barriers uh, to, you know, getting these key data elements about greenhouse gas emissions or removals um, into companies' traceability systems, it's just the sheer number of players and transactions that exist across a typical food supply chain from production to consumption. Um, so, you know, think about something like a soybean, right? Like it grows in a field and is harvested, but then it is stored at one location, then it might be crushed at another location, then it's no longer a soybean, you know, no one's buying a, you know, yellow soybean in the grocery store. Um, it's, uh, you know, the meal is going into a poultry or a pork supply chain and the oil is going, you know, into a food supply chain. And then ultimately, you know, that oil is, you know, in a bag of chips that somebody might buy at the grocery store. And that, that meal is, you know, became a chicken breast that somebody bought at a grocery store. But you can just see across those supply chains, there's probably dozens of actors. Um, and so the key to overcoming this <laughs> barrier is interoperability. Companies, dozens of the dozens of companies that make up that supply chain are not just going to need to improve their internal traceability capacity, they're going to make need to make sure that they can receive and send traceability data from and to their suppliers and customers in consistent formats that everybody can, you know, understand. And so this is where adherence to data standards like GS1 and standards that extend GS1 like GDST for seafood are, is going to be critical to successful implementation of event-based interoperable traceability across these supply chains to comply. 
Um, another big challenge that I see is um, these supply chains and the players in them are not static. They shift constantly. So shifts in procurement may take impacts achieved at a point of production in or out of scope through time. So if a brand or a retailer is funding interventions with a certain group of suppliers uh, who they calculate represent 10% of their supply in one year, um, but they're not actually buying directly from them. They're buying from an intermediate supplier or processor. There may be two, three, four steps removed from those farmers. Um, those intermediate suppliers can shift their sourcing and then the brand or retailer is going to have to, you know, remove the impact of those interventions um, from their inventory. So this is really, um, you know, to, to overcome this barrier, companies are going to need to build cross supply chain coalitions to engage with primary producers, which is going to... <clears throat> They're going to need to uh, really engage more with midstream actors, um, not make sure that they're not leaving those midstream um, uh, processors, you know, or upstream processors out of partnerships because they're going to, you know, be really critical links in those supply chains. Um, and in terms of ROI, I think, you know, there is a lot of different uh, in, in work with, um, you know, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center, we have a, a calculator for folks to understand the ROI of, of traceability. And, um, you know, I put a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different things that contribute to that, whether it's reduced liability expense, um, whether it's uh, uh, reduced scope of recalls, um, there, and then there's things that are, are more intangible, um, things like the reputation, um, the, the hit of, uh, you know, and, and that's really a, a big piece that's motivated, um, companies to sort of get on this wave. This is sort of, um, investors and customers are saying, you know, climate is a non-negotiable. And that's why we're seeing the movement from, okay, you know, we've seen this tidal wave of companies uh, making, uh, setting targets and starting disclosure. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it, it's a exponential graph over the last 10 years. Um, and uh it, we're at a point now that uh, so many are reporting that it's moving into a regulatory space. And so then it's not, um, you know, sort of a, it, it's no longer a nice to have, it's a need to have if you want to stay in the market and operate um, in these higher value markets um, in the US or the EU, um, you will need to have uh, you will need to comply with these rules and you will need traceability to do it and so then you know the ROI calculation looks uh, you know very different um, when you're looking at you know access to whole markets um, 
you know, either keeping that access or improving that access as, you know, maybe folks decide that they they don't want to play in those markets, then there is more opportunity for folks who can figure out um, how to comply. Um, and uh, that that's uh, that's upside for them. So, um, you know, I think the other thing is better understanding and management of risk that traceability can bring. And so, you know, I think folks have long been aware of the food safety um, risk mitigation benefit of traceability, but visibility to the point of production is also going to be able to make companies better able to manage the risk of climate uh, disruption. So we're getting much better at tying extreme weather events to climate change, understanding, you know, which, you know, whether hurricanes or fires or droughts. And so a company, you know, might come to understand, oh, we have 35% of our supply coming from this region that is going to be experiencing, you know, I'm just totally making this up, but the, mm. the, these are real trends, right? Increasing wildfires. And so they're going to have be facing wildfires instead of once every five or 10 years, perhaps annually. And that is, you know, could directly impact the field, but also is going to impact logistics coming out of that region. And so, um, no, maybe we make a, a long-term sort of capital plan to shift our infrastructure to another region that's not going to be subject to that same type of disruption, um, and and that can have you know a huge a huge benefit um, in terms of cost avoidance for for companies you know managing through the inevitable quantity of climate change that we're we're facing over the next uh, decade or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Allison, thank you so much. Um, I just was recalling our conversation from 2021 at uh, Virtual Reconnect, our user group conference, just a number of years ago and addressing a few of the same topics. But clearly there's been so much um, motion and and momentum, both from, you know, companies looking to, um, you know, voluntarily disclose, but then how these, um, how this guidance um, at an international level is coming together. And so really appreciate you sharing all of the um, eye-opening for, for me, certainly, um, about how there is, uh, you know, expanded benefit and how uh, companies can look at traceability across the entire business from food safety to sustainability to inventory management um, and and just how it can uh, benefit the whole organization. So really appreciate um, your perspective and really thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to um, talk with you again. And yeah, it's crazy to think just in those two short years how much this landscape has changed. Well, as you pointed out, we have uh, we have a ways to go. So thank you for, for everything you're doing. Um, thank you to our listeners for tuning into Transparency Talk with Trustwell, where we explore the critical role of transparency in building trust and driving positive change in today's food chain. We will be sure to include lots of resources that Allison referenced in our podcast notes. And thank you again for listening. Thank you for listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell. 
to learn more about Trustwell and its technology platform that connects product formulation, nutrition analysis, and compliant labeling. With traceability, recall readiness, and supply chain transparency, please visit www.trustwell.com.